Over the past few years, we've heard a lot of talk about the sorry state of the newspaper industry. Much of the attention has been focused on big dailies folding or struggling to survive. But what's the state of high school newspapers? Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, read all about it. A new study finds only 50% of public high schools in New York City have school newspapers. We'll talk with the author of that report in just a moment. And coming up later, who knew? We'll talk with the author of a book about the city's best unusual attractions, including a troll museum on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Glad you're with us for Cityscape. Our first guest this morning is Jessica Siegel, a freelance journalist and assistant journalism and education professor at Brooklyn College. Jessica is the author of a new study called We're Not Dead Yet, The Fall and Potential Rise of High School Newspapers in New York City Schools. Jessica, good morning. Nice to be here. Again, your study found that only 50% of the city's public high schools have their own newspapers. How does that compare to the national average? Well, the national average says that 74% of high schools nationally all across the country have newspapers. So the contrast is pretty pathetic. Were you surprised that the number is so low here in New York City? I I have to say I wasn't because, and and that was the the genesis of me doing this this report, the survey, is that nobody is keeping tabs on this. But I kind of knew all the factors that were playing a role in this, but you needed to get the numbers. So that's why I embarked upon this two-year survey with the help of my journalism students at uh, Brooklyn College and Baruch College to do it. And believe me, it was very time-involving to, to be able to get the, the data that we got. How many schools did you survey? Um, we tried to reach all the 441 high schools, and you know there are constantly new high schools starting. We reached 263, or 60% of the, of the high schools, which... Um, I thought it was pretty good, considering what it needs to take to find to talk to the right person and how many callbacks you have to go through and you know getting through the mechanized system calling each high school. You did a borough by borough breakdown as well, right? Yes, yes. And the Bronx, where we are now, did did the the worst. Only thirty two percent of the of the papers of the of the high schools that we reached had high school newspapers. The next one uh, after that was was Brooklyn, only forty five percent, and then ultimately Staten Island, which which is the smallest borough, had 83% of um, high schools had newspapers. Can you read into those numbers? Why is the Bronx where it is as far as high school newspapers are concerned? Well, I think the reason is because of the closing of large high schools and the replacing them with small high schools. And I guess anybody who's sort of read the papers a little bit can, can has heard uh, Mayor Bloomberg's and, and Chancellor's uh, Klein's arguments that school, small schools are more intimate, they serve um, struggling kids better. But um, the point is that high, large high schools can provide so much more to students outside of their, you know, English, math, social studies, and science classes, you know, all the things that you have to take to prepare for the regions, the kinds of things that draw kids into school, like newspapers, like chorus, like band, like art, et cetera. And unfortunately for the small schools, they're so strapped in terms of small staffs that those things are limited because of the lack of personnel. Let me play devil's advocate here for a moment, Jessica. Why are we talking about this? Why are student newspapers in high schools important? 
journalism is a, a special kind of writing and thinking about the world. And it enables students, adolescents who are very caught up in their own lives to take a step back from their own experiences and to analyze things and talk to people and find out and investigate things. And it, it's an ability that you're that those kind of abilities to be analytic and to and to try to understand the world, which are really important for college, as well as you know the kind of writing, rewriting, deadlines, all that kind of stuff. That's part. That's just part and parcel of being a journalist. Do you get a sense that these newspapers are in demand? That students want to write for the school newspaper? I think it varies. I think anything that started in a school, whether it's a new school or an old school that, you know, just starts a newspaper after a long gap, you know, you have to get kids excited about something, you know, and part of it is the the teacher and and the kind of excitement about an activity that lots of people want to get involved with. I don't think innately, I mean, I think there are kids who go, yeah, I want to be a journalist and I want to write about the football team or the basketball team or review movies. But I, I do think the building the the core of, of students around a particular activities takes work on the part of the teacher and then excitement in part of the kids saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm in this really good class. And then kids seeing other the newspaper come out and see their names um, written about or, or reading an interesting article about something that they never heard about before. So I think it's, it doesn't innately, you know, start a newspaper and they will come. It, it's building something, just like you would do if you started a band for the first time in a school, which also have been cut as well. Do principals recognize the value of school newspapers, the things that you're talking about this morning? Well, that's the interesting thing, and I think that's one of the most interesting findings of what we found, is that in calling around to all to all these um, schools, and again, I just want to underscore for, for your listeners, it isn't that we sent a survey out, it arrived in the mail, and you know somebody opened it and filled it out. We knew, and having been a high school teacher for 12 years, I knew that this envelope that would then sit in the in the, the bin would never get opened and responded to. So that's why I engaged my students and myself to call, call, call and find the right person, et cetera. But in any case, when we, when we reach the principal or the assistant principal, big school, small school, whatever, they have this understanding that a school is not a school until it has a newspaper, you know, and especially for the new schools that are starting, they felt that at the point at which they have a newspaper, that's one of the things that proved that they really had a high school. So there was an interest in, in, in having it, having one. Funding is always an issue, especially now during these difficult economic times. But what are the other major challenges to creating and maintaining a school newspaper? Well, funding, yes. I mean, in the term, in terms like you have to at least have a, one dedicated computer with a layout program. But you know, people always get caught up in that that the technology is the barrier. That's not the the, the barrier. The barrier is having a committed, engaged teacher to do it. Now. Just because you're an English teacher does not mean that you can be a journalism teacher. In other words, it's a different kind of writing. And so I, I think one of the most important findings is that, and this is, was echoed by the principals, is that they, they could, sometimes they can find a teacher who would be willing, but most important, they need, some, they need training. They need professional development. They need to, th- this teacher who oftentimes is a young person who is kind of interested in this idea, but they don't have any background in journalism. So 
they need to learn how to be journalists themselves, they, as well as how to teach journalism, two different things. And so I think the most important thing is a, a continuing professional development for the teachers who are interested. Does that revolve back to funding, no money to pay for this professional development? Funding always comes into it. I mean, you know, I, I teach at Brooklyn College. I teach education and journalism. In some ways, I'd be the perfect person to teach this. But, you know, it, it, the funding to be able to start a program like that, there's funding involved there. If I was to get funding, you know, we would offer professional development for free. You know, it, it, it does involve funding in certain ways. But, I mean, again, it's it's not the kind of you know, um, every school needs $20,000 to do this. It's more funding a, a central source and then offering it to people who are who are interested. In New York City, of course, there is a lot of emphasis on test scores in schools. Does that impact how many newspapers we see in schools? Because they're focusing so much on getting these kids ready for these exams and don't want to spend the time on developing a newspaper. I think that's absolutely true. I think this overemphasis on high-stakes tests really Im- impacts all the schools. They're all judged by that. It will determine whether, you know, principals are fired now that they're tying test scores to teachers' evaluation. So absolutely. Your report talks about a time when almost every school in New York City had a newspaper. Have we seen newspapers fold because teachers have retired teachers who are leading the journalism program, leading the newspapers. Many teachers now are reaching retirement age. We have a lot of baby boomers who are teaching. Many have already retired. But has that played a role? Oh, absolutely. I mean, no question about it, because, you know, the the person who was the journalism teacher, newspaper advisor, you know, the band person, the, the chorus person, people don't, I guess a lot of people who are not working in the schools don't understand the amount of hours that this takes. That's way past, A, what your salary is or even any extra money you get for doing these things. And the people that get caught up in these things really are committed to it, but at some point they retire. And the question is, you know, who's going to take their place? There's a really wonderful woman who who was the, the advisor at Townsend Harris High School in Queens who is actually one of the, the leaders of the um, New York City Scholastic Press Association, which is the organization of high school journalism teachers. Her name is Ilsa Cowan. She retired. She's still going there to work with the teacher who's taking over from her. So she wants this legacy. But, you know, she's unusual. I mean, people who've been doing it for 20 years or so, when the time comes to um, retire, there may be not anybody there who can take over from them, and then the newspaper dies. What would you say is the biggest school newspaper success story in New York City? Townsend Harris puts out a great newspaper, and they've won a First Amendment award, and it's an outstanding newspaper. And of course, Stuyvesant and Bronx Science are are wonderful newspapers, but of course, they're very selective high schools. You know, same thing with Bronx Science and, and Brooklyn Tech uh, and Stuyvesant. I'm interested in the schools that are, you know, you know, reaching out to kids who didn't take a test to go to it. You know, I taught at Seward Park High School, which was a large neighborhood high school on the Lower East Side, completely non-screened. We got kids who just probably, you know, ended up there. And my students won national journalism awards uh, and journalism scholarships. Uh, Two years in a row, my students won the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award for the coverage of the disadvantage, which is a, a journalism award for professionals. At some point, 
not so much now, they had two separate categories for college newspapers and high school newspapers. And we applied. I, you know, I, I heard about it. My students won two years in a row. You know, at the same time, we won Seward Park High School. The Yale Daily News won for college newspaper. So this is what's possible with all kinds of kids because, you know, again, it's challenging them to think about things and allowing them to really delve into something that writing a report for a class just doesn't do. It can be really stimulating um, intellectually to a lot of different kinds of kids. You talk about one school newspaper that is only in existence because of alumni. They're right. funding it. Do it, Clinton. Right. Um, yeah. And actually, that was true also at Jamaica High School, which unfortunately is another one of the schools that's being closed. You know, a variety of alumni also, you know, gave money to, to allow it to exist. Yeah, it's very sad. I mean, very, very sad. Is there an untapped money source for school newspapers? Well, I would hope so. Somewhere along, some funder who might be listening to this program, maybe they'll they'll come through with some money. I mean, that's a small amount of money, the printing. I mean, that's really not that much. But obviously, as we know, as a journalist, you can't be an unpublished journalist. You have to get your story out there. Well, to that being audience. said, should schools move to the Internet? Should they be publishing online newspapers instead of printing? Well, that's, that's an interesting thing. The um, American Society of Newspaper Editors, which is obviously... A wonderful journalism organization has a fantastic website called myhighschooljournalism.org, which everybody should check out. In addition to the website that I've started called uh, uh, newsstandnyc.org, which is a New York City high school journalism um, website, um, the my journalism uh, myhighschooljournalism.org offers hosting to newspapers, which is fabulous, and the template so they can put their newspapers online. What I found, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, uh, the report, uh, a couple of pages in the report, where I talked about, I looked at the number of newspapers that were up there from New York City public high schools. They had the template, but there was no content, which would suggest that the real issue is getting the kids to write, working with the kids, developing, revising, 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 which, again, is oftentimes not how high school newspaper, high school students think about writing. You hand in a paper, you hand in an, uh, to a teacher, done, they put a mark on it, that's finished. The fact is writing is revision, and, of course, all journalists know that, and this is an experience that, that some of these students get for the first time, which, again, is a great preparation for college where, you know, hopefully you're not writing a paper the night before and then handing it to the professor for a grade, but you're actually working on it over time, revising and reworking it, and then handing it to the professor. You talked about a number of the things that schools can do to create or keep their newspapers going. What other things, what are the other top recommendations that you offer in this report? There should be some opportunities for technology training for both teachers and students together so that they can learn the layout program. I mean, that's one small part. New journalism teachers and advisors need continued support for the year. So when I talk about professional development, which often has a bad um, reputation in the schools, you know, a teacher goes to a thing for three hours and then they're suddenly expected to be a, an expert in something. Professional development, in my mind, is continued support over time. Um, part of the website, newsstandnyc.org, is a... Um, a listserv, a private listserv for teachers so that they can communicate 
online to other teachers. So at 11 o'clock at night where they're going, oh, my God, I've taught interviewing skills five times already and this kid still don't get it. Does anybody have a suggestion for a really great approach to this? And then at 11 o'clock at night, somebody else will be on the listserv and say, try this. Because teachers are very isolated from each other. They, they especially, you know, you get to know the people in your school but there's really f- very few opportunities to connect with teachers in other places. Of course, that's even more true of the high school students, which, again, why the website includes a way for kids to collaborate online. Because oftentimes, my experience in teaching both in Manhattan and, and in, in Brooklyn, sometimes kids never get out of their neighborhoods. And the possibility for kids to collaborate with kids in another high school that are deal- is dealing with the same thing, like the cuts in the after-school programs or, you know, the fact that um, the whole issue of this whole thing about um, bus and train passes would be a great story for kids to work on together. So anything that al- allows kids and teachers to collaborate together, I think is really important. The report is We're Not Dead Yet, The Fall and Potential Rise of High School Newspapers in New York City's Schools. Jessica Siegel, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Extra, extra, read all about it, read all about it, read all about it. Jessica Siegel is a freelance journalist and assistant journalism and education professor at Brooklyn College. Read all about it, extra, you're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. If you want to read all about some of New York City's quirkiest places to visit, you'll want to pick up a copy of Off the Beaten Subway Track. Author Suzanne Reisman is with us this morning to talk about her guide to the unusual in the Big Apple. Suzanne, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you here. We're all familiar with the Museum of Natural History, the Museum of Modern Art, and the Guggenheim. But who knew New York City is also home to a troll museum? That is one of the things that makes New York City a really unique place. Like, every city can boast about having an art museum. But in New York, on the Lower East Side, um, there's a performance artist. Her name is Reverend Jen And in her sixth-floor tenement walk-up, she has a room, a very, very small room, dedicated to her troll doll collection. Um, And if you make an appointment with her, because it is her home, so can't just kind of show up unannounced, she will tell you about the history of trolls, show you her trolls, show you trolls she's designed clothing for, introduce you to her chihuahua, who she calls a living troll. Um, And it's really, it's fascinating. The whole time she wears a pair of elf ears to better channel the spirits. And it's great. It's like a really unique experience and... She's certainly one of the great personalities in New York City, I think. Another museum inside a private home in New York City is devoted to the opera singer Enrico Caruso. Tell us about this museum. Well, you have now started this interview with my two favorite spots in Off the Beaten Subway Track. The Enrico Caruso Museum is wonderful. It's in... um, uh, a house in Brooklyn, um, and this it's a two-family home. The second floor is devoted to Enrico Caruso, as you said, and it has original recordings from the turn of the century, and you will hear on antique phonographs, the records, you'll be introduced to Enrico Caruso's costumes, his cane, his cigarette holder, his mistress's jewelry, letters he wrote, cartoons he drew, and it's a fascinating look into the history of opera 
Italian culture, immigration, Italians in Brooklyn. I mean, the, the museum also actually has parts of the Brooklyn Bridge and the old Metropolitan Opera House. And it's charming and delightful. And I've, every time I've gone, I've been there for like three hours. <laughs> So who's behind the museum? Again, just a guy with a passion for Enrico Caruso? Yeah, um, Aldo Mancusi's father was a big Caruso fan, and um, he was an Italian immigrant. And so when Aldo Mancusi was growing up, he always listened to um, Caruso's records and just developed this passion. Uh, And then he has a furniture restoring business, and so he used his knowledge to build out this museum, including a theater, a fully operational movie theater where you could watch Caruso performances. And he's just amazing. Like, I was there. He told jokes about his wife. Like, you know, it was really wonderful. It's a really wonderful place. Only in so, New York. Only in New York. Only in New York and talking about only in New York. New York City has not one, but two places to view a giant cow hairball. Yes, you could go in Staten Island. And at the Staten Island Museum is a wall of oddities. And, yeah, they have a coughed-up hairball, which really kind of wasn't anything what I expected it to look like. Uh, and you have to go and see it for yourself. It's among other items, some of which are more bizarre than others, like a matchbox full of rabbit droppings, which is odd that it would be in a museum. Yes, um, it is. And Very then they odd. have a lot of taxidermy stuff, and they have a display dedicated to the Staten Island Ferry. And it's a really fun museum. And it's actually, I think for kids, it's a better experience than to go to the Museum of Natural History because you can get, it's a lot smaller. It's a lot more to scale. And, you know, they still have the stuffed animals, so to speak. It's a really fun, it's a really fun place. And the other place to see a giant cow hairball is at a medical museum or something related to that, right? at the New York uh, Medical Academy on, I think it's on 103rd Street, at 1216 Fifth Avenue. Um, But yeah, they have a collection of oddities, medical oddities um, as well. And they, some of it you have to make an appointment with the librarian to see certain things like the hairball. But they do have rotating exhibits. And one time when I was there, they had an exhibit on skulls that had holes drilled in them for medical purposes. So that was You write in the book, Suzanne, that the Living Museum at Creedmoor Psychiatric Center in Queens is, quote, the most moving and socially important of all places that you visited while researching this book. I had an amazing experience. Again, it's one of those places where you really can't just show up because it is a psychiatric facility in New York City. It's a state-run facility. And The people who practice their art in the museum are both in and out patients, Um, but I made an appointment with the director, and one of the patients showed me around, and you just really saw how talented so many of these people were, and the director had told me that they do sell their art, but they make barely any money on it, and, you know, it is a definite, you're a little bit almost too close to that fine line between mental illness and artistic genius. But everybody there was extremely generous and kind and excited to show me the work that they were working on. And it's really an interesting, it's a former cafeteria. And Creedmoor Hospital also has a pretty gruesome history. So 
back in the 30s, they were forced to do farming to do their own, to raise their own food and things like that. And so you can also kind of see how far we've also come in the treatment of mentally ill people. And it's just, it was great. Like, it was very interesting. The New York City Police Museum in Lower Manhattan, you write that it manages to be historic ridiculous and extraordinarily touching at the same time. Now, I get the historic. I can even get the touching. But where does the ridiculous come in? Well, it was not, and not, this is not to diss the museum in any way, but the few times I've been there, it has not been particularly well curated. So you'll have a display of, for example, weapons that have been seized from criminals over the last hundred or so years. And there's absolutely no kind – you're looking at these things and there's like a baseball bat with like a giant spike drilled into it or whatever. And next to it will be a mace or whatever. But there's no real descriptions and there's no rhyme or reason to how it got displayed. And then at the end of the room that also has this case of captured weapons and old mugshots and all of these very interesting things, there is like a random false barber shop front and psychic storefront and you're like what is this and why so it's it's just really kind of fun but then you can also do things like they have a jail cell that you could go in and take your picture in it or like you can kind of do your own mugshot so it is pretty it's a fun place i mean but yes it can definitely use a little bit more signage you know i've been to the hebrew home for the aged in riverdale not too far from here in the bronx several times on stories and i never knew that it housed a museum of old religious objects. Yeah. It's a really nice, it's a small museum, but it's really nice. It's very quiet. It has gorgeous views of the Hudson from there. And the staff are really happy to talk about the things. When I was there, they had a collection of Torahs that had been preserved from Germany um, after the war. I believe they, they have a very extensive collection. They can't show everything all at once, so it changes somewhat frequently. Um, But I always say call before you go because in these things, these small museums, things change really fast. So a couple of times I did not follow my own advice and I would set out on my journey. (laughs) Two hours later, I'd arrive somewhere only to find out that that day happened to be the day that the only person who worked there took off. And if I had just called... I would have known that. Also, not too far from where we are at Fordham University is the Hall of Fame for Great Americans. I never knew this existed either. Yes. So that was NYU's old campus. Um, And they decided sort of as a publicity stunt to build a Hall of Fame, an outdoor colonnade um, overlooking the Palisades. It's Also, it's very quiet. It's very beautiful. And they're going to put in the bus of 100 great Americans um, over the years. And they did not finish. Uh, there are some empty spaces for great Americans. I guess we have declined in our greatness over time. But it is interesting. And it's the bus are all are kind of in different styles. Um, so some are very minimalist and some are very modern and some are very traditional. And each one has a little plaque underneath it. And it gives some information about who the person was. And sometimes it'll be, you know, if it's a, a musician, they'll sort of have a musical fragment or if it's a historic figure it'll be a fragment of their you know a speech they've given or something like that but it's really lovely in addition to the attractions themselves you tell us about the gift shops on almost all of these places yeah i'm a little bit obsessive about gift shops and a lot of times i'll find i'll go to a museum and i actually enjoy the gift shop 
more than like the Museum of Natural History or what have you. But I do like some of these places sell the neatest souvenirs. Um, for example, a site that I do really love is the St. Francis Cabrini sh- Shrine up in um, Washington Heights. And it's America's first female saint. And she is on display uh, in a glass coffin. And you can, you know, she's a patron saint of immigrants. So it is pretty crowded um, at times. And all of her relics are on display as well. But then you can go to the gift shop and you can buy a fragment of one of her shrouds to carry around with you. And I just think that's cool. Or at another site that's also in the Bronx, which is a grotto modeled after the Lord site in France, where the pastor felt that it was unfair that people in the Bronx couldn't get miracles because they couldn't afford to go to France. So he would just recreate the grotto here. And it's New York City water. But you can go in and you can buy a little bottle and you can bottle up your water and take it home with you and you can have your healing miracles. And I just that's just great. Or some of the other things I've picked up are just just such little weird, odd things the first museum of American finance was like this tiny two room museum on Broadway. And now they have a huge bank. Um, They're in the former bank of New York and it's a really cool modern site. But when I first went there, the gift shop was like half the size of the museum and you could buy old cash registers. And it was, I did not because they were like several hundred dollars, but it was cool and it was fun. And sometimes you can get just as good stuff in the museum gift shop. I don't know. The book is Off the Beaten Subway Track, New York City's Best Unusual Attractions. Suzanne Reisman, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank you again. This was wonderful. I had a great time. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great weekend. <laughs>